look up and be restored. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the sermon of the fourth Sunday in Lent, March 14th, 2021, from Christ Church, Jerusalem. In Numbers 21, the children of Israel sin and bring a plague upon themselves. God, in His mercy, allows them to restore their relationship with Him through a strange device, a bronze serpent on a pole. One thousand years later, Jesus tells Nicodemus He is the one who will restore relationship between God and His people. Canon Daryl Fenton reminds us that relationship cannot be restored by a mere transaction. Repentance, a change of heart, is required. We start with something a little bit different today. Let's listen to the first lectionary reading, Numbers 21, 4 through 9, in Hebrew. <laughs> וישלח אדוני בעם את הנחשים השרפים, וינשכו את העם, וימות עם רב מישראל. ויבוא העם אל משה ויאמרו, חתנו, כי דיברנו באדוני ובך. התפלל אל אדוני ויסר מעלינו את הנחש. ויתפלל משה בעד העם, ויאמר אדוני אל משה, עשה לך שרף ושים אותו על נס, והיה כל הנשוך וראה אותו וחי. ויעש משה נחש נחושת וישימהו על הנס, והיה אם נסח הנחש את איש, והביט אל נחש הנחושת, וחי. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Second reading is from Ephesians 2, from uh, uh, first verse uh, until 10. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trans- trans- trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised that, us up together in, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the age to come, he might show the exceeding uh, riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As is our custom, in honor of the words of Jesus himself, please stand with me for the reading of the gospel. 
gospel this evening is taken from John chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. The gospel of the Lord. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that he may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we stand before you tonight um, and ask for that special gift that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would send, the gift of illuminating your word so we understand it clearly, but also for ourselves. And that understanding by the grace you give us through that same spirit, we are able to acknowledge its truth and obey such that our wills are conformed by the power of your spirit within us. This is our request tonight, we pray. Pour your spirit out upon us. Amen. You may be seated. You know, sometimes um, preaching is easier than others. And when I uh, realized that these were the texts I was preaching, I thought, well, gosh, those are familiar. This will be easy. I've been reading a uh, 16th century, 17th century Puritan divine who uh, named Richard Baxter. And one of the things he says is that whenever the preacher comes to preach, he often finds he's preaching to himself. And uh, these very familiar texts, if you grew up in the church or have been in the church a while, you know them all already. Some parts of them you probably know by heart. And as the last two weeks went by, the last fortnight, if you're English, uh, we, I discovered that there was a deep sadness in with, within me about where we now stand in relation to our Lord as the people of God, particularly in the Western world. And so I, I want you to look at, uh, at these texts with me. I don't know so much as in a different light as carefully so that we discover together, I hope, what the Lord has in mind for us in these dark, dark days. I uh, have said on more than one occasion, though probably not here in Jerusalem, a few years ago I was up on one of those nights that was uh, governed by insomnia, 
not knowing what to do. Uh, and you know those days when you really want to go back to sleep and you can't? And it makes you sort of anxious. So I made a cup of uh, chamomile tea and sat on the fireplace hearth and turned on television at 2 o'clock in the morning. And of all things to come up was the biography of Billy Graham. It was English, uh, English uh, produced, it was really quite good, and I being as old as you can see I am. Uh, most of you in this room probably know who Billy Graham was, probably the premier preacher and evangelist of the 20th century. And I was a young man in the era when he was preaching his best sermons, it came to faith in the time of his ministry. And as I watched with quite a bit of interest, I realized that there were, there were tears running down my face. And I was puzzled because I thought I was reminiscing and enjoying and reveling in all those thousands of people that the film showed coming to know the Lord. So I turned it off because I suddenly was troubled. And I realized that in those years, those 40, 50 years, when thousands of people were coming to faith, while some had gone home, many were still alive. And I was wondering, given what I've known these last 30 years, why were there not thousands and thousands more? And so this came to mind as I looked at these texts. They're all three about salvation, as I'm sure you haven't missed, given the songs that we sang and the words that you heard. But they don't all look at salvation quite the same way. And so I want us to... Uh, to look at each of them, not exhaustively in any one text, but picking out some things in each text that may give us, I don't want to say fresh insight, but perhaps a good reminder. If I were to put in a simple sentence what I hope we rediscover is that salvation is not a transaction, but the beginning of a relationship. That salvation is not a transaction, but the beginning of a relationship. So if you uh, want to follow along on the screen in numbers, uh, we're using the international version so that all of us can easily get the English. You'll know that this is about the children of Israel. Wasn't it nice to hear it read in Hebrew tonight from the Torah? And you'll know that they've been traveling a while in the desert after having seen fire and smoke and received quail and manna and seen water pour from the rock to meet their needs. Remember, these were the people of God. They weren't the pagans who surrounded them. And what does the text tell us? The people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. Wait a minute. They spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Of course, immediately you can see the, the uh, inconsistency there's no bread and there's no water, but we detest this food. But, you know, I don't think it was about the food. <clears throat> it was that they <clears throat> spoke against God. They rejected all the Lord had done for them, you know, them to call them into relationship with him and said, this is how you are, no thanks. Remember, these are people who don't have a hope of eternal salvation. This is a temporal time, time before we think almost anybody believed in eternal life. But they were looking for more than they received. 
and looking the wrong way and in the wrong place by turning away from the Lord's relationship with them. So what does the Lord do, says the writer of the text? He sent snakes among them. Now, I've lived much of my life, as it were, in the world, in secular jobs, before I became a pastor. And I know that when people read something like, the Lord sent snakes among them, they think wrathful, punishing God. And it's easy to draw that conclusion if you don't know the Lord. You could put it another way that was easier to hear that said, God, no thanks. So God said, okay, you're in the wilderness. There's all sorts of stuff out here. I'll just take the protection away and we'll see what happens. And there'll be people who will say, you know, that's not what I hear Jesus saying. We'll talk about what Jesus said in a minute. But what I find so fascinating is that when it happened to the people and the venomous snakes came and bit them and some died, instantly they turned to Moses and said, we've offended God, do something, help us. And immediately the Lord responded and he sent a rescue. A rescue we don't quite understand, a bronze serpent, stood up in the wilderness that they all knelt before and looked at, and they got well. Of course, later Jesus knew exactly why it was there. We'll come to that in a moment. What I find really fascinating is that if you look at commentaries, Jewish commentary from the first century, the interpretation of this text sounds pretty sound to me. The Mishnah, most of you know about the Mishnah. It was the oral, oral Torah, it's called sometimes, the commentary memorized by all rabbis. In the passage in Mishnah Rosh Hashanah 3.8, which is about uh, this, this portion of the text, uh, the writer says, When the people looked up, they gave their hearts to their Heavenly Father, and they were healed. You see, the issue for the Lord, even in that moment of salvation, was to restore his people to a relationship with him. Fast forward a thousand years to Jesus. And a text so familiar, um, I even... Well, you've heard a lot of preachers better than me who preached it. But I want to point out a couple things that could be helpful to us, I believe. The the first is, um, in the course of his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus takes this episode from Numbers and says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have, eter- believes may have eternal life in him. A couple things to note. His reference to himself as the Son of Man, most of us know that comes from Daniel 7, a text that clearly speaks to the Messiah, especially in this period Everyone, when they heard the phrase Son of Man, well, maybe not everyone, but almost everyone who was Jewish, understood that was a reference to the Messiah they hoped were coming to redeem them from the the oppressors who held them down, the Romans. But Jesus takes what the Lord did in Numbers, moves it forward a millennia, and says, in effect, this is a plan my Father put in place that like that serpent, I, the Son of Man, will be upheld in order that for the same purpose relationship might be restored with my people. 
Interestingly, Jesus wasn't introducing the idea of eternal life, if we thought that. Who was he talking to? He was talking to Nicodemus, right? What was Nicodemus? A Pharisee. Yes, a member of the Sanhedrin and a leader in, in the country. But as a Pharisee, we know that he believed in what? Eternal life. However, Jesus had a few things to say to him about what was, what was wrong with what he thought brought, brought about eternal life. That's why he says, Teacher of Israel, you don't know these things? In another passage. He says in that famous, famous, or he said what he meant in, in, in John, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that Son of Man, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now we hear that. Because of perhaps a few decades of not quite good teaching, we think of it transactionally. Like, we do this, and God does that. But for those Israelites, what they knew was to restore the relationship, repentance was required. Any married person knows that too. When the relationship is damaged or broken, usually somebody, or maybe two people, need to repent. And so it was implicit in what Jesus, what is said here, that eternal life, restoration of relationship came with repentance. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. And how is it saved? It's saved when reconciliation occurs between Jesus and the Father. As the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, Jesus was sent into the world in order that we might be reconciled with the Father. And that's what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. It's not how well you keep Torah, and certainly it's not how well you keep Mishnah. My teaching on earth here has been all about how your heart relates to the Father's heart, and then the things you do that demonstrate you're in relationship with him. So when Jesus later talks about the light, coming into the light is coming into relationship with the Lord or choosing to remain in darkness. And like that momentary complaint of the Israelites using a complaint about food to reject the Lord of glory in a relationship with him. I uh, find it interesting that when people say things like, that doesn't sound like the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus I know, they always leave out these, uh, this verse, verses like this one, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. We have this terrible, 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 terrible time acknowledging that the person on the inside doesn't look like the person we project on the outside. Unless we're so fortunate that the person on the outside is weak enough and fails enough that they know they need a relationship with the Lord just to survive. We could go on about this passage, but I really want to move on to Ephesians because it's there, I think, that we find what we most need to know about ourselves. Because you see, while this text is usually used for the purpose of sharing the gospel with those who don't know him, and it certainly can be used rightly for that. The reason I was weeping that evening 
was because I looked around and saw all those who were still perishing and the church so caught up in its own life, its own work, and its own comforts, that it seemed to have lost its heart for those who were perishing and its heart for holding up the name of the Lord by which those relationships, if they were made between those who were perishing and the Lord, would glorify his name as well. Um, yeah, that's enough. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. They're so familiar, they almost don't need to be read. But I really want to be sure we focus on something that is easy to forget in these days and not often talked about. Chapter 1. Paul writing again to God's people in Ephesus. Hence, since we're all here tonight, and those of you who are watching, who have followed the Lord and believe you're in a relationship with him, supplies to all of us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the prince of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Now, is that how you think you used to be? You know, we, we're quite far away from the view of this earth held by the Apostle Paul and all the Apostles. We're, we're decades away from when preachers brought up this awkward point. But the prince of the power of the air controls those who have not been released from his power through a relationship with God through Jesus. And that as long as they are under his sway, it's beyond the judgment of any of us to be upset with them or to be angry with them, however difficult that is. It's for us to remember that they are held captive whether they understand it or not. And if possible, if possible, if we walked with the Lord for any amount of time, we should throw back our hearts and minds to those days before we knew him and were ourselves caught up in that power. Now my fear, my fear is that uh, the solution that's offered for by grace you have been saved through faith, so often preached, about which many song lyrics are written, has become so grossly twisted that we forget what's really at stake, that we forget what God really did, and quite conveniently, we forget how much we needed it. And so, we've lost our compassion for those who need it still. So I, I, uh, I want to, I hope, prompt your, your thinking just a bit. Um, how, do we, how do we respond to this? Well, you know, we can all, all identify with the few people around us if we still associate with any of them, which often as believers we don't. 
Those who are caught up in those sins that are so obvious, who are so obviously out of fellowship with the Lord. You know, the world of flesh and the devil, you know, money, sex, and power. And when those people come to faith, it's a glorious redemption. And we all know stories about it. And most of us haven't seen it for a very long time. In fact, wouldn't be much chance we could, because we don't spend much time with people who don't know the Lord in most cases. But you know, that's not even the hardest part. The hardest part is that we have stepped into the kingdom, but only halfway. As long as we think we're covered by grace, sort of like those Israelites who thought they were covered because the temple was in the city, God would never do anything or say anything to them. We think that we're covered, and you know, God cuts us a little slack. And so, day after day, time after time, we think we're walking with the Lord, we come to church, we know how to behave. And some of those things that remained within us, because we looked at grace as a transaction, we don't realize what those Puritans realized, that the graces must continue with us through all of our life. Because once the relationship with the Father is established, it cannot be maintained properly unless we call upon that grace every time we need the power to do what we're supposed to do. So I thought, could I figure out a way to express how this works inside the church for the people of God, just like those people of God who were out there in the wilderness and met the snakes. So I thought, well, what, what, what kind of Christians have, uh, have struggled and slipped away from a very close relationship that gives them the kind of power those graces could give them? Now, the trouble with making this kind of list is I realized I appeared on it more than once. But perhaps it will help you identify the kind of uh, the reasons why. We're in the situation we're in now, in the world in which we find ourselves. You know, there's the superior soul, the person who's polite, mature, socially skilled enough to conceal the condescension they feel toward other Christians who don't know quite so much as they know. And then there's the Christian manipulator. They know all the right words to sound spiritual, but between flattery and false guilt, they do their best to get what they want. They often say things like, God told me what you should do, and they mean what you should do for me. False humility is pretty common in this group. Then there's the practitioners of, spir of, of, of spiritual self-promotion, you know, folks who are very busy in the work of the Lord, they want recognition for it. And when they pray, they pray for God's blessing, not for his guidance. They have a theme song, I'll do it my way, not I surrender all. There's the fault finders. They sweetly but persistently criticize the views and behavior of other disciples, all the while being viewed by those disciples as having probably the same issues themselves. As the psychologists see, say, we see the weaknesses of others that we have most prominently in ourselves. And then there's the I don't want to grow up disciples, believers really. You know, they, they, uh, 
They want to be saved, but they don't want to grow, so that all the other Christians they know can take care of them. Because it's too hard to become like Jesus, you know. I, I'm really not able to do it. It was just two more. The insurance policy believers who, who want eternal life, but for the life of me, without being in a full relationship that's transformative, I don't know why they'd want this life to go on forever, do you? Because that's what it seems like they like. And then there's a group that says, I know the Bible says, but... And these are people who will tell you they firmly believe the Scriptures until they find something hard to obey, and then it somehow doesn't come up in their conversation or their devotions. Richard Baxter probably put it better than all that list. He said, Holiness is nothing else but the habitual and predominant devotion and dedication of soul and body and life, and all that we have to God, and esteeming and loving and serving and seeking him before all the pleasures and prosperity of the flesh. Now, I'm going to stop there except for just one word. My concern here is not to make you feel any worse than I felt, frankly, because you know grace is abundant. In fact, in the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul talks about how the Lord wants to lavish his grace upon us. There's a great gift of joy and goodness. You know, we should be the people who, in relationship with the Lord, feel that grace every day, and the forgiveness whenever we come to him and need it, and thereby are those who bring joy and peace to all those enthralled in darkness. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.